Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about how nicknames for young boys can actually help them socialize better. How archaeologists in Poland have unearthed the grave of a woman people feared might return from the dead, and a new study that disproves Freud's theory that more successful people are usually unhealthier than less successful people. And without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Callie, did you ever have any embarrassing nicknames growing up? Uh, okay, no, not embarrassing. Like, my family had a really sweet nickname for me. I was called Happy Eyes growing up, or Cal by my friends, but um, that was fine. But I'm just Callie, you know? Sure. Okay. I hear that. Well, I recently found out that specifically for young boys, nicknames can be really important. Recently, a clinical psychologist, Jet Stone, wrote an article talking all about the importance of boyhood nicknames and what they say about our sense of belonging and how they can help us become better people, even if they're kind of embarrassing nicknames like jerk face or turkey rot or gravy goblin. (laughs) Okay, wait. Mm. Are these nicknames of people you know? No, and (laughs) not any nicknames that anyone ever gave me. Never mind. Uh Anyway, research shows that the prevalence of nicknames has actually been declining in the last few years. The researchers aren't sure why, but it might have to do with people creating more curated usernames for online profiles or just the prevalence of more unique-sounding names. But Stone says we lose something when we lose nicknames. I mean, do you lose more than just friends laughing at you? Well, don't underestimate those laughs. Stone says nicknames help young men better understand communication, bond with other males, and help with being better socializers later in life. Plus, on top of that, they are just a really fun reflection of your past emotions, habits, and behaviors. It's always revealing to ask someone their childhood nicknames. They're sort of a time traveler's window into your past life, even if they are embarrassing. Okay, but when do you have to worry about embarrassing going into the realm of bullying, though? Well, Stone says if we are quick to dismiss nicknames as bullying, even the embarrassing nicknames, we miss some of the benefits that come after a bit of social friction. He says they help boys build emotional resilience and can help them feel like part of a group. Okay, so social friction. I do feel like sometimes I see boys give each other nicknames where someone clearly doesn't like the nickname they're given. Yeah, sure. And Stone says that might be young boys testing out how strong of a friendship they have. Can friends work out their issues and work together even as they purposefully ruffle each other's feathers? In this way, even some of the most cringeworthy nicknames show that you are part of the group and that the group trusts you. So who gets nicknames in these kinds of groups? Is it cool friends, the leaders of the group? Well, they can reflect the pecking order in a group, but they can also be used to pull some boys out of social isolation and to goad them into being part of the group. And if friends see one of their own getting a little overconfident, they can knock them off their pedestal a bit. Nicknames can be great for keeping balance in a group and teaching boys to socialize well, feel like they belong, and respect each other. So it seems like nicknames have a lot of benefits within a group, but do these extend to the rest of your life or to your identity? Does being called something like tiny if you're a big guy really make you a better person? Stone says that it does. 
Rather than being born into a family, being part of a group and getting a nickname means you are forming your own sort of social order, your own tribe. Young boys are able to collaboratively and creatively create and express their identities. Plus, it's a way to practice showing affection and self-acceptance in a way that can feel safe for boys as they try to navigate what can sometimes be a toxic process of growing into a man. Okay, sure, that makes sense. Plus, it's hard to hide from your own flaws when your friends are calling you something like Mr. Late Nate. Okay, I have to talk to Dr. Stone about <laughs> projection <laughs> nicknames because you have the problem with punctuality, not me. Hey! But yes, Stone says that being given a nickname and not being able to curate our image like we do on social media makes us confront ourselves and be more accepting of ourselves, warts and all. Nate, 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 Nate. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, yeah, Did here. you hear that archaeologists in Poland just found the grave of a vampire? Uh, <laughs> you mean like a human vampire? I do. I do mean the human okay. vampire. I love vampires. Okay, so archaeologists uncovered a 17th century grave that would make Dracula himself jealous. But don't worry. The findings don't prove that the skeleton is from a real blood-sucking undead vampire. It just means whoever buried this woman thought, or at least feared, that the dead might not remain dead. All right. Okay, that that makes a little more sense. I do know that stories about vampires have been popular for a really long time, but I had no idea that people were actually taking precautions against them. Well, okay, you're actually totally right. There are actually stories about vampires and the undead in cultures all over the world dating back about 4,000 years. Ancient Mesopotamia had stories about undead monsters. Hebrew texts had the monster Lilith, who stole infants and unborn children. The Greeks had a similar monster, Lamia, who drank the blood of young children. And Chinese folklore had corpse monsters who would rise from their graves to attack the living. So, mm -hmm. since the lore was so popular, it makes sense that people would try different methods of protecting themselves from the undead. Okay, so this fear was all over the place. I, I mean, I can't blame them. I don't like the sound of undead monsters either. <laughs> uh, but when did this idea of the, I want to suck your blood vampirism make its way into our pop culture? So first off, great Dracula impression. Next up. Thanks. Well, the first news reports written in English, and I mean news reports, not pop culture, came around 1732. Hysteria swept through much of Eastern Europe as people worried about epidemics of vampirism. That continued all the way into the 19th century, which is when you see pop culture references like Bram Stoker's Dracula. All right, so if people were so afraid of the undead and vampires, what were they doing to protect themselves? Was everyone carrying around garlic and mirrors? Well, archaeologists found examples of how people protected themselves, and in most cases, it involved trying to make sure that the dead stayed dead. Uh, okay, so is that what they found with the Polish woman? Yes. They also found out that she was of high social status. She was a young woman, and she was buried with a lot of care. She had a silk cap on, which is something that a lower or middle-class person just couldn't have afforded. She was buried with a sickle blade not just near her, but attached directly over her neck in such a way that if she were to try to lean up, it would slice her head clean off or at least cause a serious injury. She also mm. had a padlock on her big toe. Uh, why the lock on her toe? Uh, archaeologists say it's a symbol for the closing of your life and how it's impossible to return. 
Oh, all right. Well, they must have really not wanted her to come back. Oh, yeah. They wanted to make sure she wouldn't. Out of fear, they often decapitated the dead or cremated them or drove a stake through their heart. Sometimes they even put things in their mouths or cut off limbs or smashed their bodies with stones. It's... <laughs> it's pretty gruesome stuff. But these people weren't fooling around. They were really scared of the undead. Was there any specific reason they were afraid she was a vampire, though? Okay, so archaeologists say she had big, noticeable, protruding teeth. <laughs> they would have stood out in town and may have made other people suspicious of her despite her high class. This was at a time where people thought that any unique physical features were a sign of evil. Okay, well, difficulties of living in a time before orthodontia, <laughs> uh, that's kind of rough. I guess I could see how you would need those teeth for sucking blood, or at least biting. Okay, well, uh, how did they find her grave? Well, a few years ago, they found some medieval corpses in the area. They found jewelry, stones, bowls, and silk cloth. They went back recently to continue the dig, but couldn't find anything new, so they moved on to a nearby 17th century graveyard. Wow, okay, can't find anything here. Let's just go <laughs> dig up the dead bodies. Rude, but all right, I guess that's an exciting thing to find. What's next for our vampires? So researchers are learning a lot about burial practices and fears, but they say next they're going to do DNA testing and see what else they can learn about this woman. All right, well, uh, hopefully that DNA comes back 100% dead. How long does someone have to be dead before it goes from grave robbing to archaeology? <laughs> Please keep that. Please keep that. Callie, I'm here to tell you that Sigmund Freud was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay, listen, you're coming in hot with this topic today, but I'm going to need you to explain a little bit more even if I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, so there's a theory of his called the wrecked by success phenomenon. It's a pretty well-studied theory created by our guy Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, that proposes that successful people pay a huge price in their health for their success. It's so popular that it's often cited as common knowledge. But as I mentioned, recent research has come out to disprove this theory. There's not one but two different studies showing that people living successful lives are equally healthy to and sometimes healthier than their less successful peers. Well, okay, maybe I don't pay attention to common knowledge, which is probably something I should do, but it makes sense to me that successful people would be healthier. I mean, more money equals more resources, and more resources equals more options for survival. So... As much as it pains me to say, how could Freud have gotten this wrong? Okay, well, the theory really took off in the 90s, after Freud's time, when a clinical psychologist named Stephen Berglas defined it as, and I quote, a condition that develops when the rewards of success expose an individual to a variety of psychologically stressful situations. These render him vulnerable to disorders ranging from depression and drug abuse to self-inflicted failures and even suicide. Now, how Berglas even got to this definition was through the research of Freud, which, by the way, was based on some pretty anecdotal evidence. He knew some people that he felt proved his hypothesis, such as a woman who was diagnosed with mental illness after trying and failing to marry her partner, and an academic whose mentor retired and he never got over it. 
Okay. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't take into account the stress of day-to-day living for the working class, right? I mean, this seems like a very narrow focus to say only the successful can be wrecked. And that's what current researchers Harrison J. Kell and his colleagues at Vanderbilt University thought when they revived this theory to investigate. So they conducted two studies. In study number one, they analyzed data from the 1,800 most successful participants from a study known as the Study of Mathematically Precocious Youth. These participants fell within the top 1% of all students surveyed. In study number two, they quizzed a group of 714 elite STEM doctoral students. In both studies, researchers asked participants about their income and to complete assessments of their physical and mental health, psychological status, and so on. 25% of the participants with the highest income were considered exceptionally successful, while the remaining 75% of the participants were considered less successful. It's important to note that both of these groups consisted of very intelligent people whose only notable difference was a level of success. Ah, okay, so now it's time for the moment of truth. This is the part where you say, screw you, Freud. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm not going to say (laughs) screw you, Freud. But contrary to whatever you'd expect from the wrecked by success hypothesis, the exceptionally successful group was either healthier or of equal health than the less successful group in both studies. There were actually more people with no health problems in the exceptionally successful group And those that reported health problems had way less of them on average compared to the less successful group. And this was the case for both men and women. Wow, okay, so not only was Freud wrong, but his research didn't include any difference in gender, and the current studies found it was the same across gender? That's kind of (laughs) wild. Well, it wasn't all the same. While exceptionally successful men had more biological children, were more likely to be married, and less often to be divorced compared to their less successful peers, the exceptionally successful women had fewer biological children on average than their less successful peers. Technically, the marriage and divorce statistics were lower too, but the researchers concluded that the difference was so small it doesn't prove anything. Huh, okay, that's really interesting, because that could be read in a number of ways. Statistically speaking, modern women are far less likely to view any of that as a barometer of success. If anything, it could be a status of success. Exactly. And that thought is in line with the researchers' conclusion that wrecked by success is a bit of a stretch. They believe it's all a case of heightened expectations. When you experience failure after a lifetime of success— It feels worse than it actually is, right? And these studies admittedly have a few limitations. For instance, all the people included in the study were successful in their careers. So results might have been different if the success of people with more common ability levels were studied. But there's one thing we know for sure. (laughs) And that's, screw you, Freud! No. (laughs) No, it's that science is constantly evolving. Freud did have a point based on the evidence in front of him, and it was one that endured for a long time. But as time moves on, the science of success does too. So in short, maybe it was once possible to be wrecked by success, but success today just looks different. We can simultaneously respect Freud's work and look into it with a more modern context. Okay, we'll split the work here. You can respect Freud, and I will look into it with a more modern context. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. Boyhood nicknames, even the embarrassing ones, 
may make you a better person and more able to socialize well. They can help you learn to value yourself and work out problems with others. Archaeologists in Poland have found the grave of a female vampire, or at least the grave of someone locals feared was a vampire. The burial included a sickle across the throat to make sure that if the woman tried to become undead, she would decapitate herself. Does success come at a high price to your well-being? Recent research suggests that Sigmund Freud's famous wrecked-by-success theory might not be right, and that successful people are, as a whole, much healthier than their less successful peers. This teaches us a valuable lesson about the constant evolution of science, and especially about how successful people perceive failure. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can find our show wherever you get podcasts, and we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Wheelhouse DNA executive producer is Cassie Berman. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our producer is Kiara Noni. Writing is done by Jed Bookout and James Lynch. Our researcher is Julia Schrader. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Nate Bonham. And I'm Callie Gade. We'll see you next week.